This is The Guardian. More than a million NHS workers will get a 5% wage rise and a one-off payment after a majority of trade unions accepted a government offer this week. It's a good day for NHS staff, but it's also a good day for patients. The Health Minister, Steve Barclay, may be happy, but the Royal College of Nursing is among unions that have rejected the deal and it's now balloting its members on more strikes. They need to address the nursing crisis that they've got right throughout the NHS. Until they do so, our nurses, unfortunately, will be left with no option but to continue with the action that they are taking. So, is this the beginning of the end of the big strike wave or just the start of its next chapter? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Francis O'Grady, the Labour peer and former General Secretary of the Trade Union Congress, who is in a part of the Houses of Parliament immediately next to quite a noisy demonstration, just so you know what that is, and Pat Cullen, the General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Here's a very obvious question. It is coronation weekend coming up. Dare I ask you what you both are going to be doing? It's all right if the answer is nothing special, because that's certainly my answer. (laughs) Of course, people will know that I'm from Belfast. So I will be returning to Belfast Friday evening. So I will spend my weekend with my husband looking after my mother-in-law. Okay. But will you be raising a glass or or even pledging allegiance, as apparently we have the option of doing? Any of that can happen? I raise a glass every single day to every single nurse that I represent. These are very good diplomatic answers. And I pledge allegiance to every single nurse in the UK. So that's what I'll do again at the weekend. Okay, I'll I'll leave it at that. I think I know where you're coming from. Francis, are you going to have a a Union Jack frock on? A glass glass of Vimto? A bit of Vera Lynn on the stereo? I'm going to take a leaf out of Pat's book and I'm going to be toasting every key worker in the country and everybody who's having to work. There aren't any street parties in my neighbourhood, but the pub is having a swing dance session outside. And I thought whether you're Republican or Royalist, having a party is no bad thing. Yeah, I feel a bit like that, really. I'm a staunch Republican and it's not really my scene. But at the same time, recently I was I was out walking there where I live in the West Country and lots and lots of villages are saying, you can come and join us in the village hall and all that. And that's togetherness. And even if I'm a bit it's, uneasy about the reason for it, you know, it's a good thing, probably fundamentally. Yeah. A lot of people won't like me saying that, but I suppose that's how I feel. Anyway, first of all, we're going to be talking about strikes in the NHS and other strikes in all sectors of the public services and the economy and where all that is going. And then we're going to talk about the future of trade unions and whether the arrival possibly of a Labour government might make any difference. Let's talk about the NHS first of all, and specifically Pat's Union, the Royal College of Nursing. More than a million NHS staff in England, we now know, are going to receive a 5% pay rise after health unions back the latest deal put to them by the government. Staff, including ambulance workers, nurses, physiotherapists and porters, will get a one-off sum of at least £1,655. This deal was agreed after a majority on the NHS Staff Council backed it as a result of some of the biggest unions in the NHS, such as Unison, the GMB, um, and those representing physiotherapists and midwives. But four unions rejected the offer. Pat's union, the RCN, Unite, those well-known Bolsheviks at the Society of Radiographers, and their equally militant colleagues in the Royal College of Podiatry. 
who voted with their feet. Ha ha. And <laughs> Unite and the RCN are threatening to continue strike action. The RCN needs to ballot its members to get another strike mandate. And as I understand it, Pat, that's what's going to happen. Here's the question. A lot of people, I suppose, including me, will see this as quite an unexpected outcome. The RCN up to now had never been on strike before. And now it's one of the unions that's standing its ground and rejecting the government's pay offer. Tell me why that's happened. Well, actually, I've thought so much about this every single day when you think about it. The college has been in existence for about 106 years. When I joined the college as a young student nurse, actually, no, at that time that I, I wasn't, I was just newly qualified because as, as student nurses in 19, the 1980s, we actually weren't entitled to join the college. It was just for registered nurses. And You'll have heard me say before, maybe, that I come from a family of nurses and being the youngest, my older sisters have said to me, you must be a member of the Royal College of Nursing, not any other union, Pat, because all of those other unions will strike and the Royal College of Nursing doesn't strike. Wow. And that was the very reason that all of us would have joined the Royal College of Nursing at that point, because it was a non-striking union. And it wasn't really until the mid-90s that that policy changed within the college, actually. So that it was a massive, massive move for our, for our nursing staff, and particularly maybe, you know, people in my generation and, and those before me, to get their heads round, how could we possibly withdraw care or labour on our patients. It was very, very difficult and a massive decision. And for me, can you imagine what that must have been like as the general secretary being the person to lead that and say, because nursing had got so far into the depths of despair and being totally left behind by this government, and there's no other way of describing it, 13 years of despair, that I then had to work with my council to make that decision to move to a position of ballot and members for industrial action. Okay. That accounts for why you went on strike to start with, Mm -hmm. but why you're still in dispute with the government while these other unions have settled. Tell me why you've made that decision. Well, it was our members made that decision, and I stand by it, 100% stand by it. Their pay has been completely eroded. And when you think of our registered nurses who are highly experienced, highly, highly qualified, and bring an enormous amount of expertise and skill to, to the NHS, And they just can no longer survive. Now, a lot of our members as well, we have to remember, are single parents. Many of our nurses come, are internationally educated nurses come from overseas, and they come here with their families, and they are responsible for trying to support more extended families at home. And surviving on £29,000 just not, it's just not feasible. So that's why we're sitting here, as we speak today, 47,000 vacant posts in England. So something had to be done, because their voice was being completely ignored. And briskly, in a word, how would you characterise what some unions have agreed to settle for, that that 5% wage rise and the one-off lump sum? It doesn't meet the requirements for our members. It may for, for some other unions, and I actually respect that. I can't, I can't not respect that. And indeed, 46% of our members voted to accept the deal. And what we can't do is leave those people behind. They all had their reasons for doing that, and I respect them. Do you worry that you're now, the RCN is now in quite an exposed, isolated position relative to where you were only a matter of days ago before the deal was agreed? No, absolutely not. Definitely don't. I represent 300,000 nurses in the NHS in England. 
and those people can't be isolated and won't be isolated. And any government that thinks they can leave 300,000 voices of nursing staff behind, they will do that at their peril because the only people that will suffer from that are the people of this country and are our patients sitting on waiting lists. Let's hear what the Health Minister, Steve Barclay, said about this deal on Tuesday night. Well, this is a good day for NHS staff who will benefit from this pay rise, an extra over £5,000 for a band six nurse or paramedic or midwife. So it's a good day for NHS staff, but it's also a good day for patients. Uh, It will allow us to move forward. Now the NHS Staff Council has ratified this deal. It's been accepted by the majority of the NHS Staff Council, and we can now move forward, focus together on the patients and also ensure that staff get the pay rise much sooner than would have been the case under the pay review body process. Francis, it sounds like the government thinks now it can move on. That's certainly the impression it wants to create. Mm. Is it going to be able to? I think watching from the outside, I think a real mistake of this government is kind of using the kismo as a cover for industrial relations and experience because I have to say I think anybody with a bit of experience when those results came through from the ballots would have looked at them and asked themselves the question what would it take to get RCN over the line instead we've had what I see as kind of schoolboy errors a sort of you know a cocky tone using words like generous uh, when everybody knows that uh, you know all our key workers are not getting what they deserve and more to the point workers across the piece have lost out now for years while at the same time seeing profits protected and shareholder divvies going up at three times the rate of pay. Among your arguments is a very basic point, that if you're negotiating an NHS pay deal, you're a pretty lousy negotiator if what you come up with excludes 300,000 nurses, self-evident. Well, and and remember, right at the start, they had to be dragged kicking and screaming to the negotiating table. At first, it was all a case of, oh, it's nothing to do with us, Gov. We've got this independent process who we happen to set the remit for, we set the funding envelope for, and we sign off. And that wasted... I think it was literally months in some cases were wasted having that sort of propaganda battle in TV studios rather than recognising in front of you, you've got incredibly professional negotiators who know their job, who are looking for a fair and decent settlement. I think it's fair to say that trade unions often look marginalised, endlessly weakened by laws making strike action more and more difficult. And I suppose if you'd asked me four or five years ago, what I thought the next political development would be, I would not have said a huge wave of strikes, right? And trade unions really return into the political foreground, and we'll come on to discuss this, being supported by quite hefty shares of the public. Francis, how have you felt watching all that happen? Well, I've been inspired by uh, how much support there has been from the public. And I think it's because Every working family in Britain has been having a rough time. You know, we've all seen what's happened to food prices, record number of families dependent on food banks, people not feeling they're getting a fair share for the work that they do when they see what's happening in the boardroom. And I think it's been a long fuse 
people have been through a lot. We've all learned the real value of the jobs that many key workers do, including, you know, shop workers, delivery drivers. Uh, suddenly, we all knew how much they got paid, how little they got paid, truth be told, and the importance of the work they do. And so there was this kind of bubbling up a sense of injustice, not just from the workforce, but from, you know, large swathes of the public are genuinely worried about what years of underinvestment in our public services would leave us all with. That's what I was going to ask you about, because ostensibly the trigger for the strike wave was a bit about inflation and pay and so on. But there's a lot, seems to me there's a lot more going on than that. This clearly is also about the state of the public sector after 13 years of austerity. And I dare say there's a wider point, Pat, as well, which is about people just feeling they don't have a voice, right? It's not just I want to get paid more. There are very even deeper things at work here, aren't there, and how people feel. And I think that's a very, very, very important statement. The fact that 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 the nursing staff right throughout the UK felt that their voice had been taken away, any government that would, would stand back and think that that's okay needs to really hold up the mirror again. And particularly, and I don't mean to go on about this, but I do have to say it, there is something here about us being a 90% female workforce. Mm, I agree. There is no doubt about that. And that's not being disrespectful to the brilliant men in nursing. But actually, they also get a raw deal because they've joined a predominantly female mm. workforce. But we are 90%. And if you look at the people that's speaking out against us and trying to silence those nurses again, and I hate to say it, even the general managers that came out and spoke over this weekend, the chief executive of the NHS employers, another man who has never walked in the shoes of those nurses or sat at a bedside when they're holding a person's hand that they have to walk away from and know they've left care undone simply because they've 20 other patients behind behind that needs the same care and a totally depleted workforce. And who's doing it? It's the value of caring and the the, the value that this government and other, other people put mm. on caring and, and, and trying to minimise that. When I would say there's very few people can actually ca- carry out the care and treatment that our mm. nursing staff and indeed all our healthcare workers do. And that is being devalued for all, for a number of reasons. That's fascinating, Francis, isn't it? The fact that there's a very sort of clearly gendered aspect to all this. I think there is. <laughs> the idea that this that this predominantly female part of the workforce can somehow be kicked around and taken for granted by largely male politicians precisely because they're female in the expectation that in the end they'll just they'll be grateful for what they've given and that that's changed. Well, I mean, another sector, look at social care, overwhelmingly women, the vast majority on less than £10 an hour. That's right. Doing incredibly skilled work and it just being taken for granted that women work for love. Now, every social care worker I've ever spoken to you know, our activists in trade unions are absolutely dedicated to their jobs. And, you know, I've said this before, I've been touched, you know, as anybody's relied on social care workers by, you know, their the satisfaction that they take from doing that job well. It means a lot. But you can't pay your bills with love. You know, you have to get a decent wage too. And I also think, by the way, Pat, I, I think they struggled with the fact that a number of our union leaders are now women well, in yeah, education and yeah, yeah. health. Yeah. It also applies to the leader of Unison. as uh, Christina, Christina McEnany, yeah, yeah, fantastic yeah. leader. You know, yeah. Sharon Graham, Joe Grady. Right. 
you know, right. we've got Mary in uh, NEU. We've got loads of women leaders. Now, pause there. Hold on a minute. That's really interesting because that was not the case 10, 15, no, 20 years ago. it wasn't. It makes the politics of this strike wave very, very different. And right? the government was using a playbook from a time when they could kind of depict trade unions as being all about blokes stood around, you know, on picket lines with sunglasses on. You know, the world has changed and they needed to get with it, but failed to. Now, that brings us on to another possibly gendered question, is how negotiations work and the positions and attitudes that the government has taken in the middle of this strike wave. It seems to me that the government has sort of resorted to an old Tory cliche, really, which is that in the midst of disputes with working people, you have to be firm and tough and all of that. And you paint the trade unions as villains in sympathetic media outlets and so on. You know, it's been very, very familiar. I'm old enough to remember the late 70s, just about, and certainly the 80s. And the government's approach to this has had lots and lots of echoes, completely deliberately on their part, of that period of history. And I I wonder to what extent, In your case, Pat, you've seen that close-up in the way that negotiations have been conducted. Has it been like that close-up that you felt as a sort of unnecessary belligerence, really, in in those negotiations? I think I was the first one to actually maybe put my head above the parapet about this Secretary of State, and I think I did use those words about him. I I think I did call him belligerent. I did, yes, I did. I did say that. There's a number of reasons for that. Francis mentioned earlier about how long it took them getting into the room in the first place. They kept our profession and other healthcare workers, including our ambulance workers, out on picket lines for 12 weeks before they got into a room to start to talk about pay. Now, during that time, we heard all the the rhetoric coming from the Secretary of State about my door's always open. And that was was quite a belligerent attitude to to the workforce and to, to me as their general secretary and to others. And then we had a couple of meetings where I walked through that metaphorical, my door is always open, and went in. And his attitude to me was anything but pleasant. And the night before our first strike, or two nights before the first strike, eventually I got in to meet with him. And it was not a pleasant meeting. And I said to him very clearly, you can stop this. I remember saying to him, if you move to push our nurses onto picket lines, you'll never get them back because you'll have lost them. Just tell me a bit more about that. So you just got the impression straight away that the Secretary of State was not sincerely interested in what you and I would understand as an honest and open negotiation process. You could tell straight away that he had a sort of hardened, belligerent, my way or the highway sort of approach to this. Certainly in the early days, there's no doubt that that was the case. And that's the reason we had to stand outside his room for for 12 weeks before he opened the door and sincerely got in. Once we got in for for the round of negotiations that ended up with the pay offer, I think there were other people introduced into the picture that brought a more rounded approach from from his end to to those those discussions and negotiations that perhaps helped him then to see it slightly different as well to be honest how much of that belligerence uh, is still there given that your union among others is in the position that it's in i suppose the heart-wrenching thing out of all of this was that during without saying too much about negotiations because it's not right to talk outside the negotiating room too much but during that period there were certainly very positive comments made to me about this government wanting to have a different relationship with nursing moving forward and recognizing 
that our nursing staff were on picket lines, not simply to put an extra couple of pounds in their pockets, but if they listened to any of those nurses that were saying, this is about trying to save the NHS, which is totally broken, and about our about safe nurse staffing because of the risk that they're carrying and the risk that patients are carrying. And all of that coming together, they, they said they would want a different relationship with us. But then where we end up now, simply because those nursing staff, the 90% female workforce that I talk about, had their voice and rejected his offer, he has resorted back to type again. Right. And that's right. what we see. That's what we see now being played out. And that's that's really, really difficult for our nursing staff to take because it seems to be there was an insincerity, perhaps maybe around have, wanting this different relationship. And if it's this, diff, if this is the different relationship our nursing staff are saying to me, we don't want that, Pat, because it's certainly not going to deliver for for our patients. Francis, I want to ask you this: You're talking to us from the Palace of Westminster because you are a member of the House of Lords. As we all know, it's become more difficult for unions to take strike action because of legislation passed not long ago, and more to the point. The so-called strikes minimum service levels bill is in the House of Lords at the moment, which will make uh, the business of taking strike action for many workers more difficult still. Just tell me about that and um, how much you worry about it, I suppose. Well, again, my own view is it was another major political miscalculation from the government. I think they wanted that backdrop to the strike wave of talking tough, trying to divide service users against staff in public services and coming up with new ways to do it. This strikes bill is basically about handing over massive power to the Secretary of State. Uh, It's what they call a skeleton bill because there's almost nothing on the face of it. So very little parliamentary scrutiny, setting minimum service levels, which traditionally over decades now we've done through agreement on emergency cover that's the fire service health ambulances Uh, you know that's done through voluntary good faith agreement they want to make it statutory and give employers the power to sack any member of staff who says for reasons of conscience for my own belief I'm not prepared to comply with a work notice that names me individually. And if they do that, they can be sacked. This in the midst of a recruitment and retention crisis, apart from anything else. I mean, it's daft. But I think the real purpose is to have another reason to be able to get injunctions against strikes, frustrate that democratic will. Unions can have done everything possible, but because they're also required to encourage uh, people to comply with uh, these work notices, if they're deemed not to have done that properly, they can be sued and taken to court too. So it's another way of making it almost impossible in this country to mount lawful strike action. It's a fundamental infringement of people's freedoms. Pat, this question of interference by the courts in strike action, you have very, very recently had direct <laughs> experience of all this. You're laughing mirthlessly. We sure have, yeah. Because the High, the, the high Court came with the decision very, very recently to cut short this week's nursing mm-hmm. strike. You mm-hmm. said the full weight of government gave ministers his victory over nursing staff. You said it was the darkest day of the dispute so far. It was. It was. Any government that, that drags their nurses to the Royal Courts of Justice 
in good Belfast terms, I'd say they've lost the run on themselves. My goodness, I looked at, at how nursing staff have been engaging in industrial action throughout the world, actually. And I couldn't find a single country that had actually challenged their nursing staff through the courts. At a time, and John, I really do need to say this, for a couple of hours of those nurses having their voice on on a picket line, at the same time when Scotland and Wales extended their mandate for three months without us even asking, without us even asking. But yet in England, our nurses who are being treated like second class, and that's a horrible thing to say, like less citizens were being dragged through the courts by this government, and that's not lost on those 300,000 nurses, I tell you. What burns through everything that we've said in the last 10 or 15 minutes is this very, very vivid sense that the government wants to speak in the language of having fixed this and the strike wave now drawing to a close and so on. That's in keeping with the way that Rishi Sunak sort of set sent messages out about the sort of prime minister he is he's this man who's come to get things done and to sort out these problems but everything you've both said really has indicated that this is not over right yeah i think it also just shows as i say that lack of experience i was thinking about this you know we've got lots of ministers drawn from areas like new tech and finance and but don't necessarily have any experience of leading people. And I think it shows because they've sort of forgotten that the success of the country depends on the labour of people at work. But I don't think they get it. Have you dealt with Conservative politicians in the past who have fitted that description who knew what they were doing in the negotiation and understood the importance of it well one of the great ironies for me john is that during the pandemic i went to rishi sunak when he was chancellor with a proposal from the trade union movement for a furlough scheme and again i don't claim this was an original idea we basically took the best of everything we could see in other european countries cut and pasted it and said that's what we need in the UK to protect people's jobs and make sure that Britain can get back up on its feet quickly after the pandemic. You don't want to lose people's skills and livelihoods. So that scheme, which um, you know the government's very fond of claiming as a great success for itself, was actually conceived and pushed by the trade union movement. We negotiated it. We had people in the Treasury. Uh, we could phone up anybody, any trade union movement and government minister in Europe and find out how to make it work in the real world. And it saved over 10 million people's jobs. Now, I think that was a success. So, And then, <laughs> and then we're like dropped like a hot stone. I'd, I'd said to Rishi Sunak, we need a national recovery council. It's clear that huge numbers of public servants have been through this massive trauma, you know, personal trauma, workers you speak to who've put their health and sometimes lives on the line for the rest of us, and they're going to expect fair rewards. And we were just dropped. But the fact that you were able to convince him of the merits of the furlough scheme shows you that Rishi Sunak at least can do this if he wants to. That's what I take from that, right? If he wants to, and if we're considered at least as important as some as, as some of the backwoodsmen 
on his back benches. Okay, on that note, we're going to pause for a minute. When we come back, we'll be talking about the changing face of trade unions, the opportunities that this moment perhaps presents them, and uh, we'll also talk about the Labour Party. Welcome back. We are now going to be talking a bit about the past and present of trade unions, but we'll also talk about the future of trade unions and trade unionism. Pat, a moment ago, you told us how you got involved in the trade union movement. Francis, in your case, trade unionism runs pretty deep in your family, doesn't it? Am I right in saying that your your grandfather and father were very, very active trade unions? Yeah, my doubling granddad was uh, very active. And my dad, my dad was a steward at Cowley the car plant this is just outside oxford now makes the mini but in those days was part of the legendary organization (laughs) british leyland that's the era we're talking about yeah and by the way the stewards there across the car industry came up with plans for developing hybrid cars back in the 70s again if only the workers had been listened to they also went on strike a lot yeah, and I got involved in USDOR, the Shop Workers Union. I was working at Marks and Spencers at the time, and again, a bunch of us young ones wanted to get organised. So I suppose Oxford as a city, when I was growing up, was a union city, and still is. Now, if in 2023 people of a certain age think about strikes and trade unions, they do think back, I mean, to some of what you described, I suppose. And they maybe picture white men standing around braziers that are those sort of flaming dustbins on picket lines. That's to keep them warm, by the way, not to create a, 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 any public <laughs> disorder. The point about these strikes, and this has been building for a long, long time, is that they show, we mentioned this a moment ago, that we're in a different era now, particularly in the public sector. I've been very, very struck reporting from picket lines over the last year or so that it hits you straight away that so many and often most of the people striking are women and people of color the old stereotypes are not what they were it's great um, as you both said a moment ago that there are so many women trade union leaders now but there is still a job to be done isn't there on properly representing the diversity of that workforce we're not there yet Yeah, I mean, we've got brilliant people like Patrick Roach, of course, who led the TUC's work on anti-racism and leads one of the big teachers' unions. But there is a lot more work to do. But it's also about where we organise, you know, strikes in the public sector for sure. But we're also seeing an uptick in action in the private sector. People will have heard what's happening at Amazon. You know, as a movement, we've got a number of new recognition deals, you know, from Uber to Deliveroo to Ryanair, uh, I hope soon Amazon, which is showing that I think we're now beginning to organise in parts of the private sector that we really need to gain strength in. And that will give more of a voice, I think, particularly uh, to young workers, but also black and ethnic minority workers. And John, there's something in this as well, just following on from what um, Francis and I've, I've done a lot of reflection on this. When we set out on the journey to ballot our members for the first time in 106 years nationally for strike action, and I was visiting hospitals up and down the country, there are definite cultural barriers that were preventing our internationally educated nurses from 
having the, I suppose, the confidence to come forward and, and participate in industrial action in the ballot. And some of them were brought from their own culture, obviously, where some women, for example, speaking to me, were saying they had to make contact with their parents and others in their parent com- country in order to get permission to participate because right, women right. women in those countries maybe weren't weren't able to actually vote. The second thing was they were terrified that they were going to lose their visas. And there was a real feeling that if they had their voice and put their head above the parapet in this country, that they would be deported and lose the, the, the basic livelihood that they'd got here. Do you think to any extent that the pandemic sort of shifted the terrain that trade unions operate on in terms of public attitudes? I mean, this takes us back to the question of, of quite high public support for the strike, certainly in the NHS, because we've just passed through this two year period when this new term, which I've not heard before, key workers came into common currency and there was the clap for the NHS and so on. And people, I guess, felt that need to sort of pull together. There was a more sort of collectivist mindset necessarily because of what the pandemic was. And so when you emerge from it and you get this great strike wave, it's happening in a different context. Is there something to that, Francis? I agree. And I would admit to believing that Having been through that experience of the pandemic, having seen the work that people did, having seen how little they got paid, yet clapping them as heroes, that something would have to shift, you know, that we couldn't be put back in the box. Whereas I think what we saw was, okay, thanks very much. Off you pop, back in your box. Yeah, on the government's Yeah, from ministers, you know, they've been handed out badges. And then suddenly it was kind of like, you know, back to business as usual. Whereas I I believe that the public, something did shift. Nonetheless, I have an experience which happens time and again when I'm out reporting. And we sort of just use it as a device to really highlight a lot of these issues from time to time. In my experience, more often than not, if you ask someone under 25, say, what a trade union is, most of them don't even know, right? Yeah. Very often they've said to me, well, I don't know what that is. And then you explain and so on. And then you look at the statistics, nearly 90% of under 30s on low to medium incomes work in the private sector, but just 6.3% of them are in a trade union, right? At the same time, this is a generation which in other areas, you know, like the 1.4 million young people who went on climate strikes, is prepared to be politically active and mm-hmm. so on. It, it has that vocabulary, But there's a sort of absence, a lack, as far as trade unions are concerned. That's a big issue, isn't it? I mean, what's very clear is that young people share trade union values overwhelmingly. And that's something, that's a cause for hope for the trade union movement. But what's also clear is that young people, especially young working class people, are basically segregated into quite a small number of jobs and industries, very often on insecure contracts. So we do have to look at numbers and we have to look at organisation. And especially in the private sector, in areas like hospitality, that without doubt are hard to organise. And there aren't too many sympathetic employers in that sector, but we've got to do it. Now, we are talking on the same week that there is a huge round of local elections, which it is said may mark a key staging post on Keir Starmer's path to Downing Street and the return of a Labour government. Nonetheless, if you listen to Keir Starmer talk about how things are or aren't going to be different come the arrival of a Labour government, it doesn't necessarily feel 
like the cavalry is coming even if they get into power. All the messaging is about the fact they're not going to have much money to spend. For the first few years, at least, there won't be great radical transformations and life is going to carry on being difficult and so on and so forth. That leads me to a very obvious question. Francis, you're a Labour peer, but I'll ask you first. What are your expectations here? I mean, we're talking in the in, in the midst, not just, as we've said, of strikes that are all about the fact that people aren't being paid enough. They're strikes that are also happening because the public services are in a state of acute disrepair. Some would say they're broken, right? That's part of this strike wave. And yet the Labour Party is being very upfront in saying, look, don't think we're going to take office and solve this terribly quickly because we're not. Union leaders I still speak to aren't expecting overnight miracles. What they are expecting is a clear plan and, you know, a real sense of direction towards a fairer economy, which will create stronger public services. And, you know, it's very clear that the NHS has been underinvested in for years. But when you look at Labour's past record, it has always gradually restored pay. It has always upped investment and cut waiting lists and backlogs. So, you know, to me, it's a pretty simple choice. If the choice is the Tories or Labour, I know who does better under Labour, and that's working people. Pat, what are you expecting from a Labour government, and is it different from what you want? I would imagine it is. What, what I want is to see, again, I keep going back to the people that I represent, I want to see them earning a decent wage for the job that they do. I want to see the NHS being brought back from the brink. What I'm asking from the, for the Labour government, look, I know they're not going to sort the problems all out on the first day. No one, no one in the trade union movement expects that. But there needs to be a rapid and radical plan put in place for, for, for that to happen immediately should they come into power. And instead of producing, which we will have again at the end of this month, more and more workforce plans. We know what is required. There's no point in producing more and more glossy documents. And I would hope they wouldn't do that without having investment plans that underpin those. And that's what we're asking from Labour. Put in long-term investment plans that underpins the direction that we need to go to to, to get the, uh, the NHS particularly back from the brink. Can you envisage the RCN striking again under a Labour government? We pride ourselves actually in being apolitical. We are not associated with any political party. We're, we're not affiliated. And it doesn't matter which government come in. If they again turn their back on nursing staff, as this government has, absolutely we will. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Francis and Pat. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK, wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. This episode was produced by Jack Claraman. The music is by Axel Kakutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 